What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers. And we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people. And each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people and another 10. We did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. I refer first to the need for far greater public information. To the need for far greater official secrecy. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, it didn't happen. And here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? When I hear your new ideas, I'm reminded of that ad. Where's the beat? They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. Well, Governor, we also have fewer forces and bayonets because the nature of our military has changed. We have these things called aircraft carriers where planes land on them. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. On the 5th of June 1967, the Middle East was plunged into war. Threatened with total annihilation by her Arab neighbors, Israel struck first. In just six days, the Israeli army destroyed the combined forces of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, and conquered the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank, more than tripling Israel's size. On the third day of the war, the Israeli army entered the old city of Jerusalem and captured its biggest prize, the holiest site in Judaism, the Western Wall. This was the first time in 2,000 years that Jews had been in complete control of the holy city of Jerusalem. On that day in 1967, David Rubinger took a photograph of the Israeli soldiers who had just captured the Western Wall, an image that came to epitomize the euphoria of that moment for Israelis. He met me with one of the paratroopers from the photo, Yitzhak Yifat. David, where was the picture taken? It must have been around here. And I was lying down on the floor and shooting up at these three guys. They're walking but stopped for a moment. And I, I think there is awe in their faces. Gula Cohen was a journalist at the time and also witnessed the capture of the Western Wall. For 2,000 years, Jews said, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its cunning. 2,000 years. They looked, they prayed towards Jerusalem, towards the east, 
All this, at that moment, came together. Suddenly, it was whole. And when it was whole, I understood why Jerusalem is the holy city. Before the war, we had about three weeks of what was called the waiting period. The mood in Israel was one of uh, standing before doom. Ramat Gan Stadium, which is the leading football stadium in Israel, was prepared to be a burial ground for 40,000 people. Uh, and uh, so imagine the, the feeling when suddenly, on the morning of that uh, June day, it's like you're doomed, you're, with, you're with, in, with a rope around your neck, and somebody comes up and says, just before they pull the, the trap door, takes off the rope from your neck and says, you're free. You're not only free, you're now king. And that, that was that euphoric feeling. Where, I mean, I'm, I'm not a religious person, but I cried when I when Gula Cohen later became an Israeli MP, she sponsored a law to make Jerusalem Israel's complete and united capital. I think that Jerusalem will be the most intractable problem. Although you may hear people saying, oh, we can give up Jerusalem, who needs it? The Jewish nation will not let go of Jerusalem. A nation can be separated from Jerusalem for thousands of years, just as we were, yearning for it, dreaming about it, and awaiting the day of return. But now we have returned. To give it up again would mean giving it up forever. Just a week after the conquest of Jerusalem in 1967, the old city was officially opened to the Israeli public for the Jewish festival of Shavuot. For the first time since the Jews were exiled by the Romans 2,000 years ago, the Western Wall was in Jewish hands. This moment, which is so symbolic in the history of Israel, they were talking then about a Jerusalem eternal, holy, undivided. Is that the thought of Jerusalem you thought you were capturing? At the beginning, there was a phrase, benevolent occupation. There ain't no such thing. There is no benevolent occupation. Kibush Naor. Just two words that cannot go together. And we, for a while, we thought that it works. I don't say we should have lost the war in 67. I wouldn't be here to talk to you then. But we would be dead. But we won, but the outcome was a little bit too messianic. The Western Wall is today a wide open plaza at the center of the old city of Jerusalem, the location for all major Jewish and Israeli state festivals. But 40 years ago, in June 1967, when Shlomo Lahat was appointed military governor of Jerusalem, it was very different. I knew the Wailing Wall from, from years ago, but immediately it came to me that it's very narrow. One side was belonged to the wall from the Holy Temple, and, and next to it was also another part built with terrible houses of mud, horrible. So I asked Moshe Dayan, here when will Jewish people will come and they will see the Wailing Wall and they will be so excited and this place is so narrow that we might have here more victims than we had in the war. So I think that we should 
enlarge it. Yeah. Aisha Maslui and her brother Abu Marwan were two of approximately a thousand Palestinians who, in 1967, lived on the Western Wall Plaza. She still lives in a small flat overlooking what was then called the Moroccan Quarter. And how many rooms did your house have? My house uh, is very big. We have five rooms mm -hmm. and bathroom and two kitchens. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the most beautiful in our house is the garden. You had gardens yes, there as well? Yes, in that time we have garden. These houses were in terrible shape, done from mud and stones. Sure. You see, every house had the two, two, two rooms, yeah, with a small kitchen, nothing. Who lived there? Who, who, what? Arabs, yeah. Poor people, of course, very poor, yeah. How many in your family, Aisha? We are uh, eight uh, children, and my mother and my father, ten persons. And what about your neighbors? Were they good people? Yes, yes. We have very Many good, good friends. And we have very good relationship with the whole people in the area. I decided <coughs> that um, I'm going to call some of the inhabitants, and if they have a certain council, and to offer them to leave our, these houses, to take everything out they want, because we want to destroy it in order to enlarge it, to widen it. Yeah. And three people came and they said, um, Commander, we are the representatives of the other people. Yeah. We accept your idea. Excellent. And it took us two days or three days and the whole area was empty. And then we destroyed it. Israeli journalist Uzi Benzaman has done a detailed study of the destruction of the Moroccan quarter in 1967. They took uh, a, a sheet of paper and they marked what part of this area will be demolished. And the army sent some people who went through each of the buildings, each of the departments the that were there, and told the people to leave because it's going to be destroyed. Most of them obeyed. But there were some who refused, and they said, we'll die under the, the bulldozer. We don't want to leave our homes. Aisha wanted me to meet one of her former neighbors. She told me he had some old photographs of the Moroccan quarter. A small road to enter until the Moroccan gate in the wall. Mm -hmm. Here in this corner yes. is his, his own house. These three houses are yes. his, his own houses. Yes. Look this. According to historical records, the Moroccan quarter was built on land donated after the Crusades 800 years ago, under the terms of Jerusalem's oldest Islamic charitable trust. The final decision to destroy it was taken by senior members of the Israeli government. Shlomo Lahat was put in charge of the operation. There were 135 houses there in which lived something like 1,000 people. They'd been there for 800 years. They were as much a part of the fabric of Jerusalem in this Moroccan quarter as were the Jews. And their houses were destroyed. There was a school. There was a mosque. There were 130 mosque I didn't destroy, and I didn't destroy any mosque, first of all. Secondly, I mean, I didn't enforce them to do it. I offered them. If they would say no, I wouldn't take them. It dates from the time of Saladin's son, 
and they were removed. They were removed Excuse from me, no. here. No. When they start to, to, to use this bulldozer at the beginning, the people believe they want to open a road to, to make uh, the, the area a little more. They didn't believe they will destroy the whole uh, quarter. And how long did they have to get their things out of the houses? There's many people, they didn't take anything, because they haven't time. So they left just in their clothes? Yeah. Many families, they went by the clothes. There was no consultation with the Arab side. It was a one-sided decision by the Israeli authorities who consulted with themselves. The people who lived in their quarter got a very short notice that something is going to happen. The final decision was taken on Saturday morning and it took place actually on Saturday night. Here's what I understand happened. People turned up with loudspeakers and they were told to leave. They didn't have time to no. move their goods. No, this is not true. This is a lie. Yeah. All the area, no one woman, she didn't hear and they found her, her body after. But the Jewish say after 30 years, they write in newspaper, they found the three bodies. There was one old Palestinian woman who died. Her name was Hajar Rasmiya Ali Tabaki. The army who went into the houses and asked the people to evacuate it missed her. And she was found under the demolished buildings and she died. Is it not true that they found three bodies there? Old people who couldn't get out in time or didn't hear? A lie. We didn't find any one dead person. This is a lie, I'm telling you. This is not true. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Public Access America, produced by Public Access Pod. You can find Public Access America on Twitter at Public Access Pod. Discover great new playlists on SoundCloud at Public Access America. Discover our catalog of vintage videos on YouTube at Public Access America. And finally, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. This has been Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making.